And I thank the members of the Federalist Society chapter for inviting me here to speak today and for this very warm welcome. It is always an honor, not just because I am delighted to be a graduate with, of the LLM program, but it's always an honor to be at the University of Virginia School of Law, one of the finest law schools in the entire country. Today, I want to discuss how our constitutional structure affects the work of a federal judge. Specifically, I hope to explore a troubling trend in our country by which litigants, the American public, and I dare say, members of the bench themselves, have come to regard the judicial branch as an alternative forum for achieving political goals. Think affirmative action, abolition of the death penalty, abortion, gun control, physician-assisted suicide, or same-sex marriage. The list goes on. I fear this trend raises vital questions about the civic health of our country and challenges the constitutional structure our founders created. Before I say more, let me make clear that I speak only for myself and not on behalf of the United States Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit, the court upon which I sit. I must also emphasize that my remarks today should not be considered as considerations or decisions about cases that could come before me. Because the problem I address is quite pervasive, the themes are relevant to many contemporary legal issues that are regularly covered in the popular media. But my aim is not to comment on such issues or such specific cases. Instead, I hope to undertake a broader analysis of how our constitutional structure speaks directly to the general role of the judiciary in deciding or deciding not to decide these questions. And of course, to say that the judicial power is limited is not to say it does not exist. And in numerous cases, federal courts must exercise such power. Since Marbury versus Madison, judicial review has been recognized as part of what Chief Justice Marshall called the judicial duty. Acting pursuant to this duty, courts may be injected unavoidably into contentious social debates as varied and diverse as those just mentioned. Most troubling is that litigants often bring these cases to the courts only because they do not want to engage the democratic process or because they have already lost out in the legislative arena. As one scholar has put it, recourse to the courts is seen as a natural move for interests disadvantaged in majoritarian legislative politics. Courts are no longer outside of the policy process, but more typically now constitute just another stage in the process of policy formation. And when judges willingly open their courthouse doors to political litigants seeking to achieve their goals outside the democratic process, litigants take note. But this was never the view of the judiciary as understood at the time of the founding. 
Unelected members of the federal judiciary, as Justice Rehnquist much later said, were never thought to be a council of revision with a roving commission to second-guess Congress, state legislatures, and state and federal administrative officers concerning what is best for the country. Unless a given legislative enactment violates the original understanding of the Constitution, a judge's striking it down is nothing more than an end run around popular government. But the question remains exactly how to distinguish impermissible judicial legislation from the constitutionally legitimate exercise of the judicial power. I suggest that the most effective way to ensure the judicial power is exercised legitimately is to employ a methodology that relies on the Constitution's text, structure, and history as constraining forces. Without such constraints, judges are nothing more than politicians in robes, free to tackle the social problems of the day based on avant-garde constitutional theory, or worse yet, their own personal preferences. While such judges may be well-meaning, that approach is inconsistent with our government's history, structure, and framework, and threatens the ideal of self-rule that we should dearly cherish. Though troubling, turning to the judiciary to achieve one's political objectives appeals to many. For one, rather than persuading a majority of a bicameral legislature, the president, and the public constituencies those elected rep officials represent, political litigants can limit their focus to a single trial judge or two judges out of three on a court of appeals panel or five justices out of nine on the high court, none of whom were elected. We know that the constitutionally prescribed process of enacting legislation involving 536 political players is difficult and cumbersome. But that is how the framers designed our system to operate. As my colleague Judge Kavanaugh has put it, our constitutional structure tilts toward liberty. But liberty and self-rule are undermined when the courtroom is opened as an alternative venue for lawmaking, allowing litigants to make their political preferences law just by winning a lawsuit. There are serious consequences to this trend, and while some are almost imperceptible, they are potentially explosive. While using the courts to enact policy may be effective politics in the short term, I suggest this practice actually threatens the foundational premises of our nation and imposes serious long-term costs. First, it violates our Constitution's structure and commitment to democratic self-rule. Second, 
Whereas the democratic process allows for the law to change as the will of the people changes, judicial legislation, particularly in the constitutional context, often freezes the law in place. Once the judiciary strikes down a law as unconstitutional, it can be nearly impossible to reverse this judicial veto. Third, unlike legislatures which represent broad and varying interests and enjoy superior fact-finding and information-gathering abilities, courts must consider the issues and facts as framed only by the parties before them. Finally, when courts act in the place of the legislature, they create perverse incentives for political actors. As courts demonstrate a willingness to legislate, political litigants and interest groups finding litigation cheaper and easier than engaging the democratic process will direct their attention and resources to the courts. This weakens democratic responsiveness and undermines the electoral process by which we normally hold political actors responsible for their actions. In contrast, when courts limit themselves to their proper constitutional role, those pushing for policy changes are forced to engage our country's democratic mechanisms for change. My lecture today has three parts. I will start by exploring the writings of the founders. Their work product, our great constitution, speaks to many of the themes I want to explore today. In particular, I will demonstrate that they envisioned a limited role for the federal courts that left ample room for the people to exercise self-rule through the democratic branches of government. Next, I hope to demonstrate that when considering constitutional cases, an interpretive method that focuses on the text, history, and structure of the Constitution is most effective at protecting the democracy envisioned at the time of the founding. Finally, I will conclude by offering a few remarks on how these ideas can be implemented in practice. I begin with our Constitution. It is axiomatic that ours is a government designed to separate and to divide power. As James Madison wrote in the Federalist Numbers 47, the preservation of liberty requires that the three great departments of power should be separate and distinct. Although the Constitution does not include a specific separation of powers article, section, or clause, the doctrine is embedded in the structure of limited government that it creates. As the Supreme Court has put it, the principle of separation of powers was not simply an abstract generalization in the minds of the framers. It was woven into the document that they drafted in Philadelphia in the summer of 1787. For instance, each of the Constitution's vesting clauses 
enumerating the powers of the legislative, judicial, and executive branches, denotes a separate and specific grant of governmental power. Article 1, Section 1 states that all legislative powers, herein granted, shall be vested in a Congress of the United States, which shall consist of a Senate and House of Representatives. Likewise, Article 3, Section 2 extends the judicial power to certain cases and controversies. In other words, the Constitution places the power to make law in the people's elected representatives and reserves for the judiciary the power to interpret those laws. The Constitution contains several other provisions in addition to Article III vesting clause that separate the judiciary from the legislative and executive branches. For instance, Article III, Section 1 secures for federal judges life tenure and salary protection. This constitutionally mandated job security is not just a fringe benefit for my job, but it is designed to shelter us judges from external influences. In other words, the judiciary is specifically designed to be unresponsive to political pressures, making it unsuitable for effectuating broad-based policy change. Moreover, when the Constitution does authorize the legislature and the executive to make law, it includes a detailed set of procedures those branches must follow. When federal judges choose to engage in lawmaking in their own right, they end run these important and constitutionally mandated procedures. As Professor John Manning has argued, the sharp demarcation of the legislative and judicial powers coincides with the adoption of a carefully designed legislative process, bicameralism and presentment. Indeed, on their face, the procedures established by the Constitution for adopting the Constitution, laws and treaties of the United States, strongly suggest that they are the exclusive means of adopting such law. While we lack time to discuss every constitutional provision today, it is sufficient to say that the framers knew of and feared excessive legislative power and therefore implemented precautions against domination by transient majorities. Bicameralism ensures that two houses with members accountable to distinct interests, must each approve legislation before it is sent to the president. And presentment serves as an additional check on the majoritarian legislative dominance. In short, the procedural requirements that must be followed before laws are enacted have real purpose and are motivated by substantial concerns. Respecting the principles of separation of powers, here, for instance, by insisting that judges refrain from lawmaking, ensures that these constitutional procedures continue to work their salutary effects. In its design and operation, the structure of our federal government effectuates a sharp separation of powers. 
because all power is vested in and consequently derived from the people, the institution that makes law should be the one closest to the people. For that reason, as Chief Justice Rehnquist once remarked, supposing that the popular branches of government are operating within the authority granted to them by the Constitution, their judgment, and not that of judges, must prevail. Obviously, the constitutional structure did not come about by chance. In fact, before adopting the current form of Article III, the participants at the Constitutional Convention considered various proposals that would have given the federal judiciary a role in lawmaking. On at least three occasions, the framers considered and rejected a proposed Council of Revision which would have served as an independent body of executive and judicial officials with the power to negate legislation after it had passed the Congress. Likewise, the delegates to the Constitutional Convention declined to create a Privy Council to advise the President on legal issues that came before him. Finally, the same delegates and the early Supreme Court, rejected the idea that the federal courts could give advisory opinions to each branch of the legislature as well as the Supreme Executive. In almost every respect, the framers resoundingly rejected proposals that would have given the federal judiciary a role in the lawmaking process. The framers' writings help explain the rationale behind keeping the judiciary separate from the political branches. As Madison, writing in The Federalist again, explained, no political truth is certainly of greater intrinsic value or is stamped with the authority of more enlightened patrons of liberty than the separation of powers. The accumulation of all powers, legislative, executive, and judiciary in the same hands, whether of one, a few, or many, and whether hereditary, self-appointed, or elective, may justly be pronounced as the very definition of tyranny. With respect to the judicial branch in particular, Alexander Hamilton stated in Federalist 78, that the general liberty of the people depended on the judiciary remaining truly distinct from the legislature and the executive. He further explained that while liberty can have nothing to fear from the judiciary alone, our very freedom and right to self-rule would have everything to fear from its union with either of the other departments. Madison drove home the point, writing that if the power of judging were joined with the legislative, the life and liberty of the subject would be exposed to arbitrary control, for the judge would then be the legislator. Though the separation of powers is a central feature of our constitutional structure, it is not self-enforcing and is not absolute. In Youngstown, Sheet and Tube versus Sawyer, perhaps the High Court's most famous separation of powers case, 
Justice Jackson wrote that the Constitution diffuses power the better to secure liberty, but that it also contemplates that practice will integrate the dispersed powers into a workable government. It enjoins upon its branches separateness, but interdependence, autonomy, but reciprocity. Justice Frankfurter responded, however, that integration of powers should not obscure the broader point that separation of powers is still the default. He wrote, the accretion of dangerous power does not come in a day. It does come, however, slowly from the generative force of unchecked disregard of the restrictions that fence in even the most disinterested assertion of authority. Such a warning reminds us, those of us in the judicial branch, that we must not allow our personal preferences to motivate us to disregard the fences that bound our authority. Not only must we be watchdogs for the other branches of government, as in the Steel Caesar case, but we must also remember how the Constitution's structure informs our own role. The framers were acutely aware of the danger of falling under the rule of a cabal of unelected judicial oligarchs. Because of this and the Constitution's structure they designed, they went to great lengths to establish judicial separation from the other two branches. Yet the federal courts do have constitutional authority. Indeed, what Chief Justice Marshall called a duty to interpret the legal text applicable in a given case and apply the law to the facts. If this exercise of the judicial power is constitutionally permissible and required, how in the high-stakes world of constitutional adjudication, should a judge faithfully fulfill his duty in a way that eschews the temptation to engage in judicial legislation and yet respects our separation of powers? In my view, originalism, properly understood, allows the judge to discharge his constitutional duties and responsibilities while simultaneously limiting interpretive ventures that could lead to judicial legislation. Originalism keeps the judge in his proper constitutional sphere, encourages the legislative branches to take action, and thereby effectuates democratic rule. Originalism, though present in the very first debates over constitutional meaning, has a shorter history as a theoretically developed mode of constitutional interpretation. The modern form of originalist theory appeared in the 1980s as the American public, government officials, and academics felt the effects of the Warren Court's decidedly non-originalist jurisprudence. But I not, need not recount the full history of originalism's development here. Suffice it to say that led like by proponents like Attorney General Edmund Meese, 
Justice, uh, Judge rather, excuse me, Judge Robert Bork, Chief Justice William Rehnquist, and Justice Antonine Scalia, originalism quickly came to be regarded as an important mode of constitutional interpretation. As I use the term, originalism means the discoverable meaning of the Constitution at the time of its adoption as authoritative for purposes of constitutional interpretation in the present. An originalist starts by looking at the textual provision at issue in a given case. And if that does not give a clear answer, turns to the historical understanding of the relevant language to clarify and to guide the interpretive inquiry. Originalism mandates that the judge treat the Constitution like any other legal text. That is, interpret how it applies to the facts of the case, not to speculate how the law should apply. In cases involving the broad provisions of the Constitution, relying on history tends to rein in the subjective elements that are necessarily present. Originalism thus moves the judge away from a subjective inquiry regarding what the law should be toward a principled application of what it is and has been since the time of its enactment. Originalism therefore limits the opportunity for a judge to act as a legislator and public policy advocate, reorienting him toward interpreting the law, what Alexander Hamilton called the proper and peculiar province of the courts. Originalism also helps resolve the seeming anomaly of judicial supremacy in a democratic society. As Judge Bork once noted, if the judiciary really is supreme, able to rule when and as it sees fit, the society is not democratic. But when judges rely on the text, structure, and history of the Constitution, it transforms the Constitution from a sword by which the judge can impose his will to a shield by which he upholds the original agreement we the people entered into in 1789. Thus, originalism is a jurisprudence that is grounded in judicial humility, but that bears its teeth in linguistic and historical determinacy. Originalism's humility first comes from its admission that the Constitution is not designed to produce the one best answer to all questions, but to establish a framework for representative government to set forth a few important substantive principles, commanding supermajority support that legislatures are required to respect. It also fosters a certain personal humility among judges themselves by limiting judicial discretion and preventing unelected federal judges from constitutionalizing their own views. By instructing that the judge only enforce those constitutional rights and principles agreed to at the framing, Originalism ensures that all other questions will remain in the hands of legislative 
majorities. That is the idea of a constitutional democracy. On the other hand, originalism is not an exercise in futility because originalism looks to the discoverable meaning of the Constitution at the time of its adoption. It acknowledges that such a discoverable meaning exists. Thus, a commitment to originalism does not entail abdication of the judicial duty and certainly does not leave the judge without a principled basis for decision-making. In fact, originalism requires the active exercise of the power of judicial review in order to keep faith with the principled commitments of the founding. It requires judges to uphold the original constitution, nothing more, but also nothing less. As Justice Frankfurter once wrote, in the high-stake worlds of constitutional adjudication, the language of the applicable provision often provides great leeway, and the underlying social policies are felt to be of vital importance. This means that the temptation to read broad personal preference into the Constitution is understandably great. Thus, in the, uh, in the adjudication of constitutional cases, it is critical that judges seek out the constraints of text and history to bind their own discretion and to serve as guideposts for responsible decision-making. To illustrate how these principles operate in a real-world case, I want now to discuss a relatively recent case that came before my court and eventually the Supreme Court. The case was called State of Washington versus Glucksburg, and it involved whether there was a constitutionally guaranteed right to physician-assisted suicide. First, a bit of history. The Anglo-American common law tradition has long punished or otherwise disapproved of suicide and insisted suicide. By the time the 14th Amendment was ratified, most states made assisted suicide a crime. In more recent decades, however, some states have begun to consider various measures designed to protect dignity and independence at the end of life including legislative reforms that would permit certain forms of physician-assisted suicide. In 1991, the acceptability of physician-assisted suicide was squarely before citizens in the state of Washington. By a vote of 55% to 45%, Washington voters rejected a ballot initiative that would have permitted a form of physician of suicide in that state. Specifically, Initiative 119 would have permitted aid in dying, which was defined as medical service provided in person by a physician that will end the life of a conscious and mentally competent qualified patient. By, re by rejecting the initiative, Washington voters reaffirmed the long-standing prohibition on physician-assisted suicide. Yet undaunted, 
advocates in favor of physician-assisted suicide, then turned to the courts. A coalition of doctors, three terminally ill patients, and a nonprofit organization that counsels people considering physician-assisted suicide, filed suit in federal court in Seattle, claiming that Washington's prohibition against causing or aiding a suicide violated the United States Constitution. They assert that, as they defined it, the existence of a liberty interest protected by the 14th Amendment, which extends to a personal choice by a mentally competent, terminally ill adult to commit physician-assisted suicide. That was the constitutional right that they identified. Of course, the members of this coalition were asking the courts to set aside the views of a majority of Washington voters by, in effect, creating a previously unknown constitutional right. The procedural history of the case is somewhat complicated. Suffice it to say that the district court agreed with the plaintiffs, concluding that the Washington ban indeed violated the Constitution. A panel of three judges on my court reversed, emphasizing that there was no such thing as a historical basis, which is to say, no basis at all for the constitutional right asserted. That decision, however, was then called before an 11-judge in-bank panel of our court, which reversed the original panel decision and once again affirmed the district court. According to eight judges of the 11-member in-bank panel, the Constitution encompasses a due process liberty interest in controlling the time and manner of one's death, that there is, in short, a constitutional right to die. The full court then voted on whether the entire 28-judge court should rehear the case, but that vote failed. Like I said, complicated. Along with two other colleagues, I wrote a dissent from our decision not to rehear the case as a full court. On the Ninth Circuit, we call that a dissental. In my view, the in-bank panel got it exactly wrong. There was no historically based constitutional right to physician-assisted suicide, and the Constitution structure demanded that the citizens of Washington, not six men and two women endowed with life tenure and cloaked in judicial robes, decide whether physician-assisted suicide should be permitted in that state. As I argued in my dissental, the history and thus the constitutional analysis was clear. The weight of authority in the United States from colonial days through at least the 1970s has demonstrated that the predominant attitude of society and the law has been one of opposition to suicide. Because the asserted right to physician-assisted suicide was not deeply rooted in our history and traditions, it was not 
a protected right under the Constitution. To conclude that it was such a right would have reversed centuries of legal doctrine and practice and struck down the considered policy choice of almost every state. That is simply not the role of a federal court, I wrote. Thus, it was without adequate justification that eight unelected judges engaged in a shockingly broad act of judicial legislation nullifying the policy choice of Washington voters and by constitutionalizing the question, removing the issue from the public square. Perhaps the asserted justification was that the physician-assisted suicide was indeed a question of great public import. But the founding fathers did not establish the United States as a democratic republic so that elected officials would decide trivia while all great questions would be decided by the judiciary. By boldly rejecting the considered views of Washington voters, the panel's decision, I wrote, threatened the public's confidence in the legitimacy of judicial nullification of the will of the electorate. When judges engage in such embarrassing judicial excess, it undermines the foundational principles of our country and erodes the legitimacy of the judiciary as an institution. Of course, the 11-judge and bank panel was not wrong simply because it imposed a policy on the people contrary to their manifest intent. Had the voters of Washington infringed on a right that was deeply rooted in the original meaning of our Constitution, that same and bank panel would have been correct to strike down Initiative 119. But that is why the historical inquiry is so critical. It is what ensures the judiciary merely applies the law to resolve a case rather than an act as an alternative forum for policymaking. When a court is freed from the constraints of history, it too easily becomes a substitute legislature. In due course, the Supreme Court of the United States reversed our in-bank panel and explicitly recognized the dangers inherent in disregarding historically grounded constitutional inquiry and the impermissibility of judicial legislation. Writing for the court in Washington versus Glucksburg, Chief Justice Rehnquist explained that the Enbank panel had cut short the earnest and profound debate about the morality, legality, and practicality of physician-assisted suicide and ignored the historical inquiry that should have been central to the constitutional analysis. The court began by analyzing the English common law roots of suicide bans, surveying the writings of Henry de Bracton and William Blackstone. The court then turned to early American history, noting that the colonies and early state legislatures continued to prohibit aiding suicide. As the court summarized, 
For over 700 years, the Anglo-American common law tradition has punished or otherwise disapproved of both suicide and assisted suicide. With no textual basis, of course, or historical justification to, aside, to set aside the law in question, the Supreme Court concluded that the citizens of Washington should have been left free to decide the policy of their, of their state. And indeed, several other states subsequent to that time have passed legislative uh, mandates either through their state legislatures or through votes of the people to permit one form or another of physician-assisted suicide in their states. The citizens of Washington had demonstrated themselves willing and able to consider the contentious social issue, and now their choice would stand. The founders, I dare say, would have agreed with that solution, with that conclusion. Now I want to conclude by offering a remark that should be obvious. In our tripart system, tripartite system of government, the people rule. Through their politically elected representatives at the state and national level, we the people make choices that become law. The Constitution does leave an important role for the judge to interpret those laws, but that role is separate and distinct from displacing legislative choices. Since Marbury versus Madison, that role also includes the duty to strike down laws that conflict with the Constitution's express words. I urge all of us to be wary, however, of the effects of using the courts to override democratic choices that do not offend the original understanding of the Constitution. That model of governance has no place in our constitutional structure. As President Lincoln wrote shortly after the infamous Dred Scott decision, if the policy of the government upon vital questions affecting whole people is to be irrevocably fixed by decisions of unelected federal judges, the people will have ceased to be their own rulers. Our Constitution bestows on us, the people, the authority to make laws through our politically accountable representatives. We should protect that prerogative by demanding that judges resist the temptation to become politicians in robes. Thank you very much.